Welcome to the Different Functional Podcast, where we explore overcoming a traumatic past to live an authentic life today. As you listen, remember that the stories we share are our own. They are our perceptions, our views, and our interpretations. We're not family historians, and we're not mental health professionals. We're simply two sisters who grew up together in a dysfunctional family. We've spent years studying trauma and learning to use our past as a stepping stone for growth. Join us as we discuss the lessons and insights we have gained on our journey from dysfunctional to different functional. I'm your co-host, Autumn, the older sister, and my favorite color is LED light blue, but only in the dark. And I'm Ivy, the younger sister, and I am a coffee snob. For all of you Starbucks lovers out there, I'm sorry, but your coffee sucks. Now, moving on to our topic for the day. Uh, we're going to be talking about self-acceptance, and self-acceptance is something that many, if not all, people struggle with regardless of your trauma history, but of course, trauma does have a special way of complicating everything in your life, and self-acceptance is no different. So today, we're going to be looking at some of the struggles that we have personally encountered in trying to learn about self-acceptance, and we're going to be talking about some struggles in general that people have with self-acceptance, which will hopefully help all of us to accept ourselves, especially in context of our trauma history. And we're gonna start with kind of a little bit of science here, which I'm gonna turn it over to Autumn because that is much more her forte than it is mine. <laughs> well, I think one of the very first things I really wanna dive into with self-acceptance, and, and this is kind of a pet peeve of mine because everything out there about self-acceptance is just about that self-acceptance. And while you're like, yeah, that's what it's about. It's about accepting yourself, isn't it? Yes and no. I mean, the reality is, is that we are genetically primed to be social beings. And so the reality is, is love and acceptance are things that are socially necessary and they're socially learned. So a lot of what we're going to talk about today is, yes, it's self-acceptance, but it's also the opinions of others and the ideas of others and the acceptance and the love we learned from others. Because while you can get to the point and you can work to the point that you can shut off some of those negative opinions and you can choose to love yourself and you can choose to accept yourself, even in an environment that is very much drastically against you, the reality is, is this has to start and you have to be aware of the social context around you. And I think one of the really important things that I want to note on that, and this will be the biggest sciencey thing of the day, is um, really introverts versus extroverts out there. So the reality is, is that, like I said, we're genetically primed to be social creatures, which means when we interact with others, our brains reward us. Well, the thing is, is extroverts get rewarded a lot more. So that happy chemical dopamine, when they go out and interact with others and they get love from others and they get acceptance from others, their brains are going, yes, this is amazing. Oh, my Lord. Oh, my Lord. So the extrovert brain is just screaming out happy with that interaction. And the introvert brain just isn't wired that way. So when they get that self-acceptance and they or that, sorry, that acceptance and they get that love from others, their brain is like, oh, golly gosh that's really nice. It's a much less reaction. So for those of you that are extroverts out there, you might find that you actually struggle a bit more with self-acceptance just because 
you are so neurobiologically primed to need that acceptance from others. Where those introverts, which I would say I fall in that category, Ivy, you in that category? Uh, yeah, I am most definitely in that category. Could not yeah. be mistaken for the other. <laughs> so as, as introverts, it's still vital. And, and we'll even talk about that today. I mean, Ivy and I are definitely some of the biggest introverts, you know, me especially. I, I barely talk to anybody besides my sister and my boyfriend for Pete's sake. But other people's opinions are still going to matter. And so just with having said that, let's kind of delve in to what some of those struggles are with self-acceptance. And, and the very first one, and this is definitely a very trauma-based one, is the need to make others happy to be safe. So a lot of us out there, you get accused of being a people pleaser or a doormat, um, and you're not accepting yourself and you're not accepting boundaries and all of these sorts of things. Well, when you come from a trauma history, setting a boundary could have gotten you beaten. Saying no could have gotten you not loved for the day or possibly set your mom off on a suicide attempt. And so sometimes that self-acceptance and that learning to love yourself is really, really scary. I mean, Ivy, could you speak to that a little bit, that idea of needing to make others happy to, to feel safe? You know, honestly, I feel like this was something that was a little bit more relevant for you in our household than it was for me. Keeping others happy in order for me to feel safe had more to do with a fear of abandonment, I think. Uh, and yeah, I would try to keep other people happy, but at the same time, I've always had kind of a, a stronger independent streak, which came out more and more as I got older. By the time I was in my teenage years, I was like, I'm willing to live on the streets and be homeless because I don't like you anymore. Um, but definitely as I was younger, a lot of it, me keeping happy and people pleasing, like my form of it was honestly to just not be a nuisance, just stay quiet, just stay out of the way, um, just try not to step on any toes, just try not to be noticed in general, which is definitely something that I still carry through to this day. Uh, and I, I know keeping others happy applies more specifically for me to my romantic relationships, where I'm much more fearful of abandonment in those scenarios. So I will, I've definitely had a history of, and sometimes do still put my own needs on the back burner because I'm afraid that my partner is going to leave me. That is where it is most applicable for me. And, and I think that's really spot on. I mean, both those things, that, that fear of abandonment that somebody's going to leave, and also that just learning to be quiet. And a, and a big part of self-acceptance is that ability to stand up and say, this is me. And how are you supposed to say, this is me, when you're afraid of that abandonment or when you're just afraid to be seen, period? And I think that's a big struggle. And I think um, another struggle, and this isn't just trauma-specific, but depression, OMG. Um, I know you have struggled with the, the little voice of depression, Ivy, just as I have. You want to go into a little bit about that? I, I do have bipolar disorder. So depression, and I have type two. So depression is definitely the more ruling force in my life, or at least has been in the past. It's definitely much more managed now, but it, it rears its ugly head you know, from time to time still, it's inevitable. But even before I really started experiencing significant bipolar in general, I definitely had depression that was more 
linked to the circumstances that I was in, just the instability in our home life and just the instability of life in general. Depression for me has been a lot of hopelessness. There's a lot of hopelessness and numbness, the idea that nothing matters. It's very nihilistic in a lot of ways. Like what's the point of loving yourself? Why? Why bother? You're never going to be good enough. Nobody's ever really going to care about you. Even if they do care about you, you won't deserve it. So why try to accept yourself? Anybody who does accept you, they must be stupid because you're horrible and, and awful and wrong. Like those are the things that, you know, the tapes that play in my head with my depression is that it's all pointless and you're never going to be enough. And even if you were enough, it doesn't matter because nothing matters. And you're, you are so tiny and your problems are so tiny and there are so many more important things in the world and there's so many more important things in the universe and you're just a blip on the radar. I think that for me has been one of the bigger detriments to me being able to accept myself over the years is getting past the idea that it doesn't matter because I don't matter and nothing matters. How has depression affected you, Autumn, in, in self-acceptance? Well, I think it's it's very much similar, and and just that little voice. In in any of you out there that have have experienced depression, you know what we're talking about. It's just that little bit that says, "You're leprous. You are diseased. You are wrong. You are the problem." And if it gets really bad, everyone would be better off without you. That's how horrible of a person you are. If you killed yourself, other people would be better for it, and that's like the antithesis right there uh, of self-acceptance. And I think for those of us that struggle with depression, trying to even get to the point of self-acceptance is outrageously difficult. And I would say almost impossible in, in the midst of a full-blown depressive episode. And it's just, how do you how do you start to combat that? How do you turn that voice off? And how do you... Tell yourself, you know, oh, yeah, I am a good person. Oh, I am worthwhile or I do have merit when every ounce of your being believes otherwise. And I think that's a huge self-acceptance struggle that a lot of us experience. Even if you don't have full-blown depression, all of us get the blues. And when you start feeling down, you start feeling down about yourself. And, and one of the things I love, I can't remember where I've read it or heard about it, was the... Um, the Rolodex, the depression Rolodex, um, especially for those of you that have uh, anxiety or insomnia, this is probably a, a regular reader for you. This is every bad choice you've ever made, every bad decision you've ever made, every stupid comment you've ever made, and how your brain nicely recorded that on this little Rolodex that you can just flip through and look at every single bad thing you've ever done. And it's really hard to find self-acceptance when you've got that Rolodex going and when you've got that little that little voice inside your head. Can I, can I add something here too about the depression? I know for myself and a lot of the people that I'm close to because when you do have problems with mental health and depression, you tend to gravitate towards other people who have had those struggles because they can relate and they can understand you better. And one of the common themes that I have noticed in myself and others is that depression also affects your ability to accept and love yourself because when you have especially chronic depression, where you have experienced it off and on for your whole life and those periods of time can last for quite a while and it's debilitating, you start to feel like a burden to other people. 
And it does start to feel like other people would benefit from you not being around and you feel guilty about being depressed all the time and you feel incompetent and you feel incapable and all of those things kind of coalesce inside of you. And that makes it even harder to accept yourself and to love yourself because you start feeling guilty and like it's your fault that you're depressed. And I want to, I want to give all of you out there a reminder that it is not your fault that you have depression. And even when you have depression, there are people that love you and they don't love you in spite of yourself. They love you because they see all of the good in you. And the depression is such a tiny part of who you are. And it it gives your personality complexity and character that you would not otherwise have. So if you are dealing with depression right now, I just want to give you a reminder that all of us that do have depression, especially chronic depression and repeated episodes of it, just remember that even though you feel really, really low right now, this is not your fault. There are a lot of things that contribute to depression. This is not your fault. And it does not make you a bad person. And I know it it makes you feel guilty and it makes you feel undeserving of love. But there are people who love you and it's not in spite of your depression. They just love you because you are more than your depression. Your depression is part of you. It is not all of you. I say that's really true. And and I think that goes back into what I initially said about that self-love and other people's love is intertwined. And one of the things that depression does is it really blinds you to the ability to see other people's love and to believe in that love and to trust that love. And and I know this is, you know, it... it I'm I'm going to give an example from my own personal relationship with with my boyfriend. You know, I I struggle with mental illness all different facets, but I always feel guilty that he's with me. When I start getting depressed, I feel guilty like I'm dragging him down and he could have a better life without me. And one of the things he's reminded me of is, yes, I am a shit show. He does not deny that. He doesn't lie to me and say, oh, no, living with you is easy, sweetheart. He doesn't because it's not. We both know it's not. But he says he wouldn't want it any other way. And that's the truth. Yes, I am difficult to live with. And yes, I have days where I am a terror. And yes, I have days where I am not a very good person. But at the end of it all, he would rather have that because the good things about me outshine it. And those good things wouldn't be there without the negative. I mean, in order to have that depth of positive, to have that depth of brightness, to have that depth of shininess or good or whatever you want to quantify it as you have to have almost that equal depth of madness or sadness and so yeah a lot of us out there that have experienced the 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 lows and the depressions and all this thing there's a lot of stuff that comes with it you may not even see or realize a lot of insight a lot of awareness a lot of kindness a lot of love towards others that gets born out of it that other people are just so grateful for even in my coworker relationships you know i think i'm this total nightmare mess of a mental health issue and people don't they you know say oh you're so different and you know I love talking to you you can just accept what I'm saying and you're not judgmental well the reality is it's, that comes from me being mentally ill so yeah I am depressed or I am mentally ill or I do have autism or I am PTSD or whatever diagnosis it is that applies to you but don't just look at the negatives of that you, you also have to see those positives out there and 
And maybe that's something you can kind of do in your own is like, okay, so these are the negatives. Well, what's the opposite of that? What do you get from that? You'd, you'd be surprised when you really start digging into it, some of the positives that can come from the mental illnesses we have. I, I think too, you would also be surprised by the number of people who who do suffer with depression uh, and who have at least had previous struggles with it, even if it's not something chronic for them. And you never know how much another person could benefit from the experiences that you've had. Because just like Autumn was saying, like there are a lot of good things that do come from it. And one of those amazing things is that there are a lot of people that also deal with depression. And even though that's tragic and it's really hard uh, on, on so many levels for us to live with it, some of my closest relationships have come from the fact that I can connect with other people who have struggled with depression and mental illness in ways that they've not been able to connect with other people. I'm able to accept things about them and to love things about them that they've only ever seen as being a burden in themselves. I'm able to talk to them in ways and give them, you know, words of encouragement that don't just sound cliche and superficial and unhelpful because I have been through those things. And I know, I know quite a bit now about, you know, what things bother me when somebody, when I'm feeling depressed and somebody's trying to cheer me up. Because sometimes what they're trying to do, a lot of times what they're trying to do is be helpful, but the things that they're saying are not helpful because you can't just turn off depression. And people that have not experienced it and not gone through it, they don't get that. And they just want to help and they just want to fix it, but it's not something that can just be fixed. So one of the blessings of having struggled with depression is the ability to connect to other people who have struggled with depression, which ultimately helps all of us who have, who have experienced it and experienced mental illness in general, it helps all of us to feel less alone and less isolated because it, as we were saying before, as Autumn was saying, you know, our ability to love ourselves is tied in with our social interactions with other people and their ability to love us and being able to relate to each other goes a really long way towards helping each other heal and helping each other, you know, develop that, that self-acceptance and that self-love. And I think that goes like beyond depression, though. I mean, to any mental illness out there. I mean, whether you're talking depression or bipolar or schizophrenia, to to really have somebody there that that understands it is important. And I mean, to go to the opposite side of this, I guess the non-acceptance portion of this, there is a lot of stigma in our culture about mental illness. And that is one of the struggles of self-acceptance is when you are mentally ill, it feels like that big red A on your chest. It feels like this thing that people are judging you for because that's kind of how culture comes across like oh you're mentally ill or oh you're psychotic and there's so many stereotypes and all these ideas out there and it can be really hard to find the positive in that you know when you are schizophrenic when you are ptsd when you have a rape history whatever it happens to be there's a lot of judgment and a lot of stereotype and a lot of fear from culture at large and so how do you find those positive things in that? How do you find, you know, the beauty of stuff when everybody's telling you you're wrong? Because ultimately, I mean, when society says you're mentally ill, that is what they're saying. You are wrong. If you were right, you would be mentally healthy. You would not be diagnosable because everything would be right with you. And so when it comes to self-acceptance and culture at large, how do you start to say I'm okay, I'm a good person. When the world is telling you, quite literally, you are wrong, you are defective. 
those are really big words that get thrown out there and mentalities that are thrown at you by therapists and psychiatrists, even though they don't intend to, they're still there. That idea that something is wrong with you, which is why you've been diagnosed with something. And I really feel like that's where a lot of that peer support comes in. And if you look out there, um, the there's a new, not really new, but it's, it's catching on with more popularity. It's a, a position called peer support specialist. And many states are actually licensing this. And what they're asking is for people that have personal experience with mental illness to take a couple training classes so they can help other people with mental illnesses. Because that's really they're really beginning to understand that is what a lot of us need. We need that understanding. We need somebody that's been where we are to be able to show us that path to beauty, to be able to show us that path to accepting ourselves, not in spite of the mental illness, but because of the diversity it creates within us. To show us not just the path to get healthy and to get right by standards, but the path to say, hey, yeah, I, I am messed up this way. But I'm also really awesome this way. I, I think one of the the things that I know I found I've found myself thinking about and questioning a lot over the course of my life is like, really, how is that mental illness defined? Mental illness in quotations, because it's in a lot of ways. Some sometimes a lot of those things are just you're operating in a way that does not fit with the social standards of the culture that you are in. And depending on the culture, certain things are thought of as mentally ill. And in other cultures, maybe that same set of things is thought of as being a gift. You know, a lot of things that we think of in Western culture as being symptoms of illness in shamanic cultures were thought of as being gifts from the gods that put you on a different level of understanding, that put you in connection with things that other people could not connect to. So I, I like the idea of the, um, what, what did you call it? Peer support specialist? Is that yep, it? Peer support specialist. I like the idea of that because as somebody who has experienced mental illness, and yes, some of those things that come with, with mental illness are things that, that are very inconvenient, very challenging, very difficult to live with, very unpleasant to live with. But we also need to, to look at the flip side of things as Autumn was saying and see the beauty and the complexity and the depth that comes with that because I think it's I think it's cheating all of us, not just those of us who experience it, but cheating everybody when we just slap a label on it of mental illness. This is inconvenient by the standards of society or this is inconvenient for the individual. This is all something that needs to be fixed because there is so much more to that. Everything has duality in the universe. Everything has duality and mental illness is no different. There's so much more to it than just illness. You are so much more than just sick and Maybe the things that are ill or sick about you, maybe maybe they're not at all. I mean, I, I think we need to, as a culture, start opening up our minds a little bit more to view things in a different way. Stop stigmatizing things just because we don't understand them. Stop stigmatizing them just because they're inconvenient or they make us uncomfortable or it doesn't it doesn't fit with how society operates. And I, I think that kind of goes into that one of the other struggles that we were going to be talking about is, is social skills, because when you when you do operate 
in a different way from how society says you're supposed to, that, you know, that kind of bleeds into all areas of your life. And one of those areas is interacting with other people who have not experienced the same things that you've experienced, who don't have the same struggles that, that you do. Um, Autumn, what do you have to contribute when it comes to, you know, the, the struggles with social skills and being different? <laughs> I like that you asked the uh, the individual that's autistic spectrum about her social skills. <laughs> yeah, I, I think social skills are a definite place. I mean, that I personally um, find my self-acceptance struggle. Like I can be like the best day and I'm thinking like great thoughts about myself. And I'm like, you know, I'm doing good. I'm this awesome person. I'm contributing. I'm meeting my goals. I'm really this great person. And then I have a two minute and 48 second encounter with a cashier and I feel like shit about myself because we are, like I said, we are those social beings. And a lot of that acceptance, again, it's socially driven. And even though I'm an introvert, even though I'm autistic and I'm, I'm not genetically primed to get the rewarded that way, I still want to connect. And there is something in me that doesn't work. It, it's not, as, as a lot of the autistic society is calling it, neurotypical, that is not neurotypical. And so there's these cues that people pick up on and these scripts that everybody just seems to understand. And I, I don't understand them. And so in any social situation I go into, whether it's a, a job interview or a interaction with a cashier or small talk on a bus, whatever it happens to be, my mind is just peddling the whole time. I am trying to analyze every single little thing. There's a, a disorder out there. I can't remember what it's called, but your brain basically forgets, um, disconnects from your limbs. So your brain does not realize you have legs. You can't feel them. You can't sense them. They don't feel like they're part of you. But because we're so visually driven, you can look at your legs. And as long as you're watching them, you can make yourself walk. But as soon as you stop looking, you're going to fall down because you're not concentrating on doing that. And to me, that's what it's like with autism. Um, as long as I am fully 208% focused on trying to survive socially in a situation, I can do pretty good. And a lot of people won't even notice that I'm autistic at all. But the second I flounder, I flounder big. And it makes it really hard to enjoy any social interaction for me and to feel good about having any social interaction because this whole time I'm pretending to be somebody that I'm not. I, I'm trying to fit into the script that I'm not. And that's where the self-acceptance struggle really, really comes in for me is I am not, you know, I am not normal. I am not fit. I don't fit. I feel like an alien. And when you feel like the only alien out there ever, it, it's really hard to accept yourself because you do feel wrong. And I mean, that's just from the autistic perspective, but I know even those that aren't autistic spectrum struggle with that. I mean, right, Ivy? I mean, I definitely have my own struggles with social skills. Uh, although what I kind of want to focus on is going back to trauma, how trauma in and of itself affects your social skills. Because for me with childhood trauma, the environment that we grew up in, our family was extremely isolated. We lived in a tiny town out in the middle of Missouri, population less than 200 people. And I'm pretty sure that was counting the cows. Very small town. 
And in addition to being part of a very small town, my parents isolated even further. Our mother, in large part because of her depression and just incapacitating depression and the trauma she was experiencing at the hands of our father. And then our father, I, I don't know, uh, paranoia definitely being one of those things, uh, his own insecurities, trying to keep the rest of us isolated so that other people couldn't see through the image he was trying to present. I don't know what all of his reasons were. But because of that social isolation, it's very difficult for me now to just interact with people in any sort of normal, if you want to call it that way. I was in and out of school a lot when I was a kid too. So a lot of those social skills that you learn in early childhood by interacting with your peers, I completely missed out on. So the fact that I had all of this trauma at home and then was isolated from other people really skewed for me how I interact. Part of how that gets skewed is that I operate still when I'm on default mode, when I'm on autopilot, I operate still in a lot of ways that were normal inside my family unit. One of the ways that that presents is very unpopular opinion. Our father was hardcore conspiracy theorist, and our mom also had a lot of kind of unpopular opinions as well, but I grew up around those sorts of things. So now sometimes as an adult, when I'm having just normal interactions with other people about politics, for instance. And I try to stay away from politics for the most part. I try to stay as neutral and on the fence as I possibly can because I think there's too much extremism out there as it is. A lot of things that other people take for granted as being true or being false or whatever, in my mind, I'm always thinking, yeah, but there could be something to that conspiracy. There's a kernel of truth in everything. And sometimes I find myself playing devil's advocate and I find myself talking about things that in like sometimes while I'm talking about it, I'm 10 minutes into this rant that I'm going on and I realize this person is shutting down. They've got the deer in the headlights look. I look like a crazy person right now. I sound like a crazy person right now. And I kind of sound like an asshole right now. And I'm not trying to, but certain things that come out of my mouth, I'm like, these are not things that other people say. These are things other people probably don't think either, <laughs> but it's ingrained in me. It's part of me. And there are so many times that while I'm having interactions with other people who came from, you know, not perfect families, but more functional families, or they grew up in more functional communities, or they weren't so isolated, they understand that there are certain things you do not say. I do not have that awareness all the time especially once I find myself getting comfortable. I can play social scripts initially when I meet somebody. I'm very shy, I'm very quiet, I'm very reserved, I keep to myself. If you get me talking though, it will not be long before I start getting comfortable and when I start getting comfortable, I'm gonna start saying things that sound completely insane to other people. And in the aftermath, I will look back on that and be like, I sound completely insane. Okay, I guess I'm just gonna withdraw forever and never speak to any other human for the rest of my life. And my lack of social skills in a lot of ways has caused me to socially isolate. So it has been a self, it's been a now self-perpetuating cycle where I was isolated when I was younger and I did not learn good social skills. And now as an adult, my discomfort with social situations and my 
haphazardly thrown together social skills make me want to isolate even further. Yes. And and I think that speaks true. I mean, whether it's, you know, your PTSD from the isolation or, you know, your autistic spectrum, or maybe you're just shy and awkward. When you have those social skills, it makes it really, really hard to get the affirmation you need from others. It's like we all let's, you know, to throw an analogy out there, we all need to download that connection. We need to download that that human connection in order to feel better about ourselves, to have our brains react, you know, and give us that positive, you go girl. But you and I were given HDMI cords and everybody's got a USB port out there. And so we keep trying to plug in our HDMI port and people are just looking at us like, what the hell is wrong with your cord? And I'm like, I don't understand this USB port and I'm looking for the right cord and I don't have it. And so it makes it very hard when your social skills are impaired, when you don't have great social skills, to get that acceptance you need from others to feel good about yourself. Because, I mean, even the way you're trying to get it is wrong. You don't have the USB. You only have an HDMI, and that's what you were given. And you're just like, what am I supposed to do with this? Yeah, I don't know if you guys listened to our, our last episode, but we made a joke at the beginning of that episode that we don't know how to small talk. It's very awkward for us. We just don't know how to do it. And that's another way that it, it this plays this theme plays into my difficulty with social skills is because where most people would start talking about sports or they would you know talk about the weather they talk about their jobs or what their kids are doing or whatever when I first meet somebody my default runs to let me tell you all of the horrible traumatic things about my past because I don't know what else to do. I don't know what else to talk about. I default to that. And most of the people that I've actually gotten close to that I have really meaningful relationships with, they were also people who did not understand it either. And they also could not small talk. And so we start exchanging these stories about our past. Um, Funny enough, uh, my boyfriend, uh, whose family was relatively stable, but he, he was in the military, spent time in Iraq. And so he's, you know, he's got his PTSD and he's got some of those issues. But when we first met and we first got together within our first couple of dates out of nowhere, he just dumped on me all of his issues and all of these things that he'd been struggling with. And I thought, oh, this one's a keeper. That was my first thought. I was excited because I was like, he's telling me things that matter. Like he's he's sharing these vulnerable parts with me and I can relate to that and I feel comfortable with this, whereas most people would not. And it's kind of an inside joke with us now that he told me a few months after that, it was that he had already started developing feelings for me and he did not know what those feelings were and he was very confused. He'd never been in love before he met me and he did not understand what that butterflies in his stomach was feeling. He didn't know what those sensations were. And he thought, this is scary and I should do my best to push her away. So I'm just going to tell her all of my traumas. I'm going to tell her all of my issues and it'll make her run away. And it did not. But his thought was like, that was going to make me run away because for a lot of other people, it probably would, or at least there's a high likelihood of that. And I have definitely experienced that in my own life where I'm trying to develop a connection to this person that I don't know. And my first thought is I'm going to tell them about my abuse as a child. I don't know why I default to that, but that is the first thing that I go to. I do not know how to small talk. And for a lot of people who have come from very traumatic 
upbringings, that can be a struggle. Not for everybody. Some people learn the small talk really well. Our, our brother, he is fantastic at that. He's great at the small talk. He's very charismatic. He can make friends with anybody. He walks into a room and everybody instantly loves him. That is a gift some people have. Not all of us who go through trauma have that gift. Some of us, when we go through that trauma, we freeze up in social situations. We don't know what to say. And we start saying things that are very personal to us, but it's not weird for us to talk about those very personal things because it's a huge part of us. It's a dominating force in our life. And we may not always understand that other people won't know how to react to that. They won't know what we expect from them. And we don't expect really anything from them, but they think we do and they don't know how to respond to that. And it, it causes a lot of confusion on both sides and discomfort on both sides. And I know I always have, I don't, I don't know how I would refer to it. The, the thing coming to mind is buyer's remorse, but that doesn't really quite make sense. But I always have this sense afterward of, I really screwed that up and I hope I never see that person again because uh, I've made them really uncomfortable. It's not that I'm ashamed of talking about my past because I'm not. For me, talking about my past, talking about my trauma, that is therapeutic. It helps me work through things. And like I said, some of my most meaningful relationships have been with people who could relate and they instantly connected and they were able to talk about their traumas as well. But I have pushed a lot of people away as well in that sense of just immediately starting to talk about all of the things, <laughs> all of the things that I've been through. And a lot of people don't know how to respond to that. Have you experienced that, Autumn? I, it was my mid-20s, um, I believe. And I heard the garbage song, Hey Baby, Can You Bleed Like Me? And that was the first time I realized it wasn't appropriate to compare scars upon initial meeting with people. Because apparently that was an emo song. And I was like, oh, I thought that's what you were supposed to do. So, yeah, I, I definitely feel that. But I, I think I want to tie this into the good with the bad again, though, because, yes, you do drive some people away and you do make people awkward, feel a little awkward. But as I've actually forced myself to stay in contact with people for longer periods of time, I've actually found that I've ended up benefiting a lot of people inadvertently. So by just being this blatantly blind person that goes in and shares my trauma and discusses these things, I actually accidentally ended up helping quite a few people because they were feeling suicidal or they had a family member that was struggling with a mental illness and they were scared to talk about it. They didn't know the words to, to reach out to someone. They did grow up in that normative functioning, a healthy, whatever you want to call it, home or community. And they had no words for this because it wasn't an experience they had. And so when I came in and I started talking about suicide and depression and trauma and, and this stuff, they were like, oh, my God. And a lot of times they froze up initially. But then a, a week later or a month later, they'd come back to me and they'd ask questions and we'd have this real conversation. And even if I didn't become their friend, even if we're not best buds now, they got something from me. And it was all accidental. So, I mean, again, that good with that bad. So if you're one of those people that trips and you're one of those, here's all my scars on the first meeting. Yeah, you're probably driving some people away. But you're also teaching other people how to talk about it and, and potentially saving lives. I mean, for, for me, it's really hard to imagine 
Um, but there is this huge stigma around, let's just say, suicide. Huge stigma around it, which blows my mind. And I totally get it and I see it. But at the same time, I'm like, how can that be? Because suicide is just part of life in my mind from my personal and my education and all that. It's just how life is. And so with this stigma, people are scared to talk about it. But when you open that door, when you introduce that topic, it literally can save people's lives. They go, oh my God, I have felt that way. Or I have a friend that's feeling this way and I don't know what to do and I'm so scared for them and I don't know what to say. And I'm like, have you asked them? And they're like, well, no, you can't just say that. I'm like, no, you can. You say, have you thought about killing yourself? It's that simple. And they do it and they have this conversation and these people get help. And it's all because I'm just going around oblivious not understanding social skills that I've accidentally helped quite a few people. <laughs> no, there, there is definitely some truth to that. I've been in some of those situations as well before. I mean, part of why I wanted to, to start Different Functional was to take away some of that stigma because a lot of times people don't get help because they're afraid to talk, they're, talk about things. They're afraid of being stigmatized. And I have not understood that because I've never been afraid of talking about it but a lot of people are. So I've definitely experienced that as well, where yeah, some people will completely freeze up, some people will completely back off and they'll never talk to you again. But then there are also plenty of people who will either open up in that conversation or they'll come back later. Or at least one of the things that I've noticed a lot is that because I do talk about things so so casually, it shifts people's perspective on that issue. I talk about my bipolar very casually. I'm not ashamed of it. I've worked really hard to learn how to manage it. I am on that shit and I'm proud of it. And I see nothing wrong with me being bipolar. And and because I, I have worked so hard on it and I do keep it really well managed and I make that an important part of my life, not just to mitigate damage, but also to make the most of what comes from it. And I feel good about that. And I'm proud of the things that I've accomplished from that. And I talk about it in a very enthusiastic way. And so there have been several conversations that I've had with people where they've told me like, oh, I used to have a really different idea of what bipolar was. And I used to be kind of like afraid of people who had bipolar disorder. I used to have all these crazy ideas about it. Or, you know, I used to think, oh, that's just completely miserable. And there's nothing that can, good that can come from it. And those people just been, must be miserable all the time. But in talking to you, I've got an entirely different view on it. And I like that aspect of it of getting things out there and talking about the, the stuff that is considered, you know, shameful or stigmatizing or taboo. I like bringing it up and talking about it in as casual a way as possible. I mean, it, it is still an important topic. You do still need to be serious about it to a certain degree, but you can also be lighthearted about it. You know, so many of the best comedians make jokes about themselves, about their dysfunction, about their mental illness. Some of the best comedians have a significant history of mental illness, but they talk about it in a way that makes us less fearful of it, that makes us want to understand more. And that's what I've always wanted. And you can accomplish that. If you don't shy away from the topic, maybe some people are still going to be pushed away. That is going to happen. There's going to be times when you're going to be embarrassed <laughs> because of you know how you presented it or whatever, or you're gonna have that feeling of like, oh shit, like I, you know, I upset that person or whatever. But there's still going to be plenty of situations in which 
you can benefit another person, even if it's not saving their life or saving the life of somebody they know in that moment, it's still shifting their perspective and they're going to perceive, you know, mental illness or suicide or whatever, whatever that is, they're going to perceive it differently going forward. And if you can be comfortable with it in yourself and talking about it, you can help that person become more comfortable with it to a point where they're not afraid of talking about it, where they can be accessible for others who are struggling with it. Or if they struggle with those things someday, that they won't be afraid to talk to other people about it. I think that's totally accurate. And and with all this, um, I kind of want to point out one of kind of the last struggle um, that I really want to touch on today was self-acceptance. And and I'm going to segue into that by saying, you know, you've, you've just heard me and Ivy talk and we've talked about, you know, how we've made this positive impact and how we truly believe in these things. And then what I'm going to, I'm going to go into this with is imposter syndrome, because even though I logically know that I've helped people. And even though I am, you know, cognizantly aware of, of my personal experiences having helped people or my education having helped people, I still feel like an imposter. So when somebody does come back to me and says, oh my gosh, you really helped me. I'm like, oh no, no, I didn't. I, I can't accept that compliment. I, that's not, you don't really know me. Like if you understood who I was, you'd realize how fucked up I was and you wouldn't be thinking me. You wouldn't even be in this room. You would be running shitless right now because I am such a horrible person. Um, so it, it, it's a really weird mix because like I said, logically you can know, you know, hey, I am this educated person or hey, I have made this positive impact. But somehow for whatever reason, emotionally, you still feel like an imposter like they're not really seeing you like well if they really knew you they wouldn't approve or if they really understood you they wouldn't be giving you this compliment and and it's crazy because there's actually a lot of people out there i've heard um neil gaiman tina fey jenny lawson a lot of people have talked about feeling this imposter syndrome now this isn't an official diagnosis this is just kind of one of those pop psychology things they throw out there but i i really really relate to that idea of imposter syndrome of being able to logically understand hey I have a lot to offer people, but emotionally, you feel like you don't. Do, do you ever have that, Ivy, or have you encountered that anywhere? Uh, yeah, I have definitely experienced that. Um, I think for me, a lot of times it comes up bec because I do have my bipolar so well managed, and I have spent a lot of years working on healing from my trauma and uh, just the things that I've been through. When I talk to people and I do talk about it, about my experiences enthusiastically in the sense that I have worked so hard at it and I have learned a lot and it has been this journey of self-discovery. And I, I am excited about helping other people get to a point where they're not, where they don't beat up on themselves, where they're not afraid of their past, where they're not afraid of the stigma. I do feel passionately about that. And where for me, I start to feel like an imposter is that sometimes that gives people the impression that I have, I am completely recovered now that I don't have issues anymore, that I've worked really hard on it. And therefore I am healed, I am cured, you know, that kind of thing. And that's a weird thing for me, because on one, on one level, I don't want to give that impression to people at all because that is not something that you heal and you cure and you never deal with again i will always have bipolar disorder there will always be times when it you know rears back up in ways that are are painful or difficult for me to deal with that's never going to go away 
uh, certain things from you know my childhood trauma are never going to go away. There is not a single day that passes, and God, I wish there was, but there is not a single day that passes that I do not think of my father and the impact that he has had on my life. That has never gone away. I've been working on this and working on myself for over 15 years. That has never gone away, and I don't know if it ever will, but sometimes because of the way that I talk, about my experiences and my personal journey, people get it in their head that I'm completely healed and I'm completely recovered. And that gives them hope that they're gonna be able to get to that themselves. And sometimes I do feel like an imposter because I'm like, but I'm I'm not, I'm not completely healed. I'm not completely recovered. I still have my bad days. I still backslide. I still have these, these relapse moments. I still have moments where I don't feel like I'm in control of myself. And on the one hand, I don't want to give people the impression that I am completely recovered, but there is that part of me that also is just like, I just, sometimes I just want it to be done. I just want to not feel like this ever again. I want to be able to get to a good spot and not always have it hanging over my head that it's going to come back someday because that is always there. So yeah, sometimes I do feel like an imposter because sometimes it feels like even without meaning to I give people the impression that this is just something that you that you can you can fix to a point where it just never comes back and you never have to deal with it again and that's not what happens and I wish that it in some ways not all the time and in not not always but sometimes I wish that it could I wish that I could go the rest of my life and never think of my father again ever that I could just erase him from my memory and never deal with him again there are days when, you know, I do feel the depression and I do feel the anxiety and I just think, oh my God, would this just go? I just never want to deal with this again. I want it gone. It's never going to completely go away. Even though there are good things that I get from it, it can be really frustrating. Those are the days that I feel like an imposter is when it's getting the better of me. It doesn't do that every day. And it's important to remember when you are on your journey that you are going to have those days where you feel like you're an imposter, where you feel like you're backsliding, where you feel like it's like you're not getting any better. That is a lie. You will feel that way, but it is a lie. When you put a significant amount of effort into healing yourself from a trauma or into managing a, a mental illness that completely debilitates you, you do get benefit from it and it does get easier and you do get better at handling it and you do get better at coping and you do get healthier and you get happier. Do not let hopelessness get to you. It's not backsliding. You are still moving forward, maybe just at a little slower of a pace. And, and I think that's like one of the most important concepts about self-acceptance. And, and I mean, you're talking about mental illness overall, but self-acceptance specifically, it's not an either or. It's not an on off. It's not a, a badge you achieved by going on this mission. It's a back and forth. It's a spectrum. Some days will be better. Some days will be worse. Some days you'll like yourself. Some days you won't. And I think it's important to really be okay with all of that. And I think that's one of my other big, big pet peeves about that self-acceptance movement is there's this idea that you always have to love yourself and you always have to be okay with yourself. You don't. Some days, all you can do is get out of bed. And you know what? That's enough. If you feel like shit that day and you think you are shit, okay, but you got out of bed. That's great. That's enough. And obviously, yes, long term, you want to work towards accepting yourself and having that sort of love for yourself more days than not. But that's really it. More days than not. More often than not. You know, a bigger love than you used to have. And that's really what you're working towards. It, it's not 
some achievement that it's just check mark, sweet, now I'm done with that. I don't have to do it again. It doesn't work that way. And, and I think one of the other things that I kind of want to tie into with self-acceptance and mental illness that what you're talking about reminded me is the idea of how to accept yourself when you start to heal. Because when you've accepted yourself as mentally ill and you hey, like, hey, there's all these cool things about me and I offer all this. And then you actually start to get better and you start to get more normative and you start to get more healthy. It can be really hard to accept yourself at that level because all of a sudden you're not different and you're not unique and you're not struggling and you're having the same problem as everybody else. And you feel, I don't know, for me, I feel all of a sudden very cookie cutter. I feel very suburban, ticky tacky house, like I'm no different than anybody else. And then I start losing my self-acceptance because I am healing. So it's kind of a double-edged sword with mental illness. You know, you finally learn to accept the mental illness and all the awesome things that can come from it, along with all the bad things that come from it. And then you start to heal from it and you have those good days and you're like, but wait, who am I now? Uh, yeah, I, I've definitely experienced a lot of that too, especially in the last few years as I've really grown by leaps and bounds in being able to manage my bipolar. And I've been in really intensive therapy for the last couple of years working on my past trauma. And as I'm getting better at coping and I'm getting more healed and I'm learning to like myself more, there are, there are times when it's very surreal because I look at myself in the mirror and it's like an identity crisis because I am not who I remember myself being. And it's, it's learning to acknowledge an, a different version of you. You're not an entirely new version of you. Um, it's not like the past you has been erased, but you've evolved in very fundamental ways. You operate at a different level. Things work differently inside your head. You react to things differently. Even, even maybe the way that you you want to dress changes like so many things shift and change for me it's not just been internal changes it's been external changes too there was a period of time recently where i was going through my closet and i was like i don't want to wear any of the things that i own because they do not feel like me anymore i would put them on and i'm like this feels awkward that looks strange i don't feel like the same person anymore as you get better and as you are healing you will go through all these shifts and changes and you have to be able to accept yourself as you are evolving it is not something that you know, as Autumn was saying, it's not like a finish line that you you get to where you're just healed and you're better and everything is fine and just like everything reaches a culmination and then it's happily ever after. The reason why we don't know what happens after happily ever after is because it doesn't exist. You know, nobody stays stagnant. You don't get to a certain point of health and then you stay stagnant and you're just the same forever. It's that's not how it works. Like part of self-acceptance is accepting yourself as you shift and change, and that can be very difficult because it seems like just as you get to a point where you accept the person that you were, now you look in the mirror and you feel like you're somebody else. And that process of self-acceptance starts again. But it's it's an upward spiral. You're always moving forward and you're always moving up. You're always leveling up. You will be able to accept yourself again, but always keep it in your mind that you're going to change. You're going to keep moving forward. And is 
disorienting as that can be sometimes, that is part of the journey. And that is part, one of the best parts of the journey is knowing that who you are right now is not going to be who you are you know, a, a few months from now or a few years from now. And learning to love all aspects of you as you've gone along that path, I think that goes away to, a long way towards self-acceptance in general, is being able to look back and love every stage of where you were at and what it's brought you to now and how how far you have the potential to go. I agree with all that. And I think one of the things I want to talk about now is, okay, that's nice, but how do you do it? Uh, being autistic, I'm very concrete. I'm very like, okay, but how do you do that? What does that look like? And so, you know, we've really talked about self-acceptance and we've talked about some of those struggles and we've talked about, you know, learning to accept yourself and you know, it's an accepting that it's a continuum and acknowledging awesome things about yourself. But in my mind, I'm like, well, what does it actually look like? Because if you don't, if you just tell me, oh, well, you need to learn to accept yourself. I don't know what that means. Uh, do you know what that means, Ivy? If I'm just like, Ivy, learn to accept yourself. No, uh, that is part of the problem <laughs> with, a lot, with a lot of the self-acceptance cultures. They don't actually tell you how to do it. They just make a pretty meme you know, with this nice font and like flowers behind it and bright colors. And they're just like, love yourself. You're wonderful. But yeah, you're, you're, you're right. Like there's, there's very little instruction on how to do it. I think part of the reason there's very little instruction is because that is in some ways, that's a very personal thing. And some things that work for, you know, you might not work for another person. I mean, I, I think in a lot of ways, you and I can really only speak to what's worked for, for us. Oh yeah. I, I think that's definitely true. And I think you know, I kind of want to start with the the not so healthy. Like, you know, when you are having troubles accepting yourself and, and you just need to function and you just need to get through, what can you do? Because some days you're not ready for the healthy stuff yet. And, and to start that off, I think my biggest thing is um, bullshit. I go into a room and when I feel threatened when I feel like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm not the smartest person here. or I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm going to be accepted. I just start bullshitting and I will be the smartest, the most educated, the most intelligent person in that room. And I will have statistics for everything and I will have knowledge for everything and people will freaking believe me. And, and I am excellent at this. I have, unfortunately, I have bullshitted a lot in my life. I have felt insecure a lot. I have struggled with self-acceptance a lot. And so I have become an amazing bullshitter. And I have actually gone in, you know, to rooms with, I used to work in the mental health field and there were like medical professionals. You know, you have RNs that have been in there for years. You've got therapists, you've got social workers, you've got counselors, you've got all of these amazing, you know, 20, 30 years experience. I even had a psychiatrist and he had like, crikey, it was like 50 or 60 years experience. And I managed to go in and control that room because the amount of confidence I was able to basically shove down people's throat and they thought I was the shit. And it was all a lie, but it got me through the minute. Uh, I think my approach has been very different in the sense that whereas you go in and you control the room, my go-to is I'll just disappear. My biggest issue that I have had the most difficult time overcoming when it comes to that, that tie-in with self-acceptance and acceptance and love from other people is that I just don't risk it that has definitely been to my detriment in a lot of ways. Most of the very meaningful relationships that I've had have not been because I initiated it. Uh, I think I have only ever initiated 
one of the meaningful relationships that I have had. I always just kind of joked that I was an introvert that just got adopted by very aggressive, you know, extroverts. I thought that was funny for a really long time. The more that I've worked on myself, the less funny I think that is. And the more I realize that I have not done myself any favors by doing that. That is not a healthy coping mechanism. Being able to handle the possibility of rejection, of criticism, of those sorts of things, that is an important aspect of healing and an important aspect of being a whole person and being confident and being able to accept yourself is putting yourself out there and being able to accept the consequences that may come from that. Sometimes you have to put yourself out there and just be ready and willing to accept that not everybody is going to like you, which is very difficult for me. Because, well, part of me is like, I don't give a shit if anybody likes me. When I'm put in a situation where I feel like somebody doesn't like me, I feel that very intensely because I am at base a perfectionist. And if somebody doesn't like me, it must mean it's because there is something wrong with me and I need to fix that in the fact that I do have a history of mental illness and I do come from a very dysfunctional family and I do have all of these issues. Obviously, there's lots of things wrong with me and this person has just seen through all of my bullshit and I am faulty and I am wrong and I am unworthy and I am stupid and I get into this negative spiral, this this hateful feedback loop where I interpret that person's rejection, even if it's just a perceived rejection, as being indicative that I am bad and unworthy and I should not even be alive. I should not be allowed to exist. The fact that I have just gone through life, for the most part, just avoiding scenarios in which that happens, that has been to my detriment. I am working very hard now to get to a point where I can just accept that not everybody is going to like me and that is okay. And I don't have to be perfect and I don't have to meet you know, everybody's standards and it's impossible to please everybody. I need to be able to assimilate that lesson, but I'll never be able to assimilate it if I don't put myself out there. For me, that's part of this podcast. It's not the only thing. There's lots of reasons why I wanted to start this podcast, but part of it is putting myself out there because there are going to be people and I know it's going to have going to happen. And believe you me, I am terrified of the con of the negative comments that we get because it's going to happen because the internet is full of trolls and there's going to be people who have legitimate criticisms and I'll take those really personally. And then there's going to be people who are just assholes for the sake of being assholes. We all know they're out there. Hopefully you're not one of them. Please don't be a dick. But I know this is going to happen and it's going to hit me like a ton of bricks and I'm going to go through an identity crisis and it's going to be painful and it's going to be challenging, but exposure therapy, sometimes it's what you have to do in order to get better. This has been my biggest detriment is running away from social situations because I'm afraid that those social situations are going to make me hate myself more and it's going to make me invalidate all of the hard work that I have done to get to where I am right now. And, and I think hand in hand with that is you put yourself out there and you sit with the discomfort because that's the other part. That's, that's the part I want to run away from because I can put myself out there. I am great at putting myself out there. You have seen me put myself out there and then I leave 
because I can't deal with the discomfort. And, and I don't let people see me because I can't deal with the discomfort. And that's, that's the next biggest piece is you put yourself out there and you accept that there will be negative feelings and that it's okay to have them. It's okay to have these doubts. It's okay to feel anxious right now. This is simply what is happening to me. And it is not going to define me and it's not going to change my life and I'm not going to be harmed by it. It is simply very uncomfortable and very unpleasant. And you allow yourself to, to be in an uncomfortable situation and you allow yourself to be in an unpleasant situation. And then you start using those coping skills you've learned to start working through it. But it, it's, yeah, it's put yourself out there. Accept the unpleasant, uncomfortable situation. And then begin using whatever coping skills you've used in the past to, to really work through it. And I know for me, like on, on the positive side, like one of the best things I've done is really going into that acceptance. And that has been accepting that I am mentally ill. It's accepting that I have diagnosis and limitations and that that is okay. And like one of the... One of my friends, um, she's a therapist. She was actually one of the first people that said, you know, honey, you're probably autistic spectrum. You know that, right? And I was like, no, I didn't. But now I do. But um, as I really began to understand that and I really began to accept that diagnosis and she was like, you know, why are you so hung up on this word? Why are you so hung up on being diagnosed as? Why are you so hung up on being autistic? And I said, you know, because with that one label, that one word, I've learned to be free of this. It's no longer that I am wrong. I'm not stupid because I don't know how to talk to people. I'm not fucked up because I can't make eye contact without feeling like I'm going to have a heart attack. It's not me. My brain just works differently. And whether that's genetics or whether that's my history or whether that's whatever it happens to be, it just means I'm different and that's okay. I'm not defective. I am different. <laughs> and, and that's really been a big thing of me is, is accepting that I am different, not necessarily defective. And that doesn't mean I just stay where I am and I never try to change, but it just helps me acknowledge this isn't a personal failing. It's not something I did wrong. It's just something that is, and I can work with it and I cannot work with it, and I can find what my limitations are, and my limitations will be different than other people's limitations. And again, that's okay. And for me, it really, really, really started, my self-acceptance started with accepting that I was different and being okay with, with that. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. There's, I, I think one of the first steps towards self-acceptance is being able to acknowledged the things about you that are different and being okay you don't have to love it right away and there are certain things you're probably never gonna love but being able to just look at it and be like this is what is this is who i am i can acknowledge that this is a part of me and that there is duality to me and that for every weakness i have there is a strength for every vulnerability that I have, there is an invulnerability. I, I think that's a big part of it is initially just being able to see yourself for who you are. Because if you don't ever see yourself, you can't really accept yourself, I don't think. 
you have to be able to see all of the parts that make you you and it is a puzzle that fits together and it has to be taken in its entirety because if it's not taken in its entirety if you're missing pieces if you don't see those pieces or if you see them but you're trying to just shove them away that picture's never going to be complete and i know and I, i'm wondering if you can kind of summarize it for us or not but you and i had a discussion a while back about um an activity that basically your therapist had you do to help with self-acceptance about all those those pieces of you. Do you think you'd be willing to share that with us and summarize that for us? Uh, it wasn't necessarily something that my therapist had me do because, I mean, it started out with inner child work, which is a very, very common aspect of uh, talk therapy is doing inner child work. But for me, it branched out further than that. Uh, and I think part of it might stem from the fact that I was always really interested in multiple personality disorder, the mechanisms of it, the idea that different aspects of you would be almost like their own individual identities. And so when I, we started doing inner child work, what I noticed was that these aspects, attributes, characteristic roles that I had within me, I started creating almost these separate beings to embody those things. So in addition to having my inner child, I had these characters almost created in my in this inner world that I had. There's this inner world where each of them has their own house and their own environment. And each of these parts of me has kind of like an identity of their own and their own roles. Um, like for instance, one of those parts of me that was kind of in charge of helping with my history of sexual trauma and my anger, especially my anger towards my father and all of that was kind of this angry teenager, sort of Harley Quinn type anti-hero character, very angry, very violent, very promiscuous, all of those things, very much a scrappy street fighter kind of girl. And I struggled a lot with her initially because she was so angry. And I don't think of myself as an angry person. That's something that's very difficult for me to deal with and accept in myself as anger and rage. And she embodied that. And I had a lot of difficulty in dealing with her initially, but because I could see her as a complex being, she didn't just embody my rage and my sexual trauma and my promiscuity and my issues with my father. She also embodied the strength that kept me fighting when I felt hopeless. She was the one who would not give up on life when I wanted to kill myself because she was like, I'm not letting this bastard take me down. I'm not letting the sexual abuse take me down. Her rage kept me alive. And because I could see her as a complex being, I could accept her. I could not accept myself fully, but I could learn to accept her. And other parts of me started to emerge in a similar way. They each had their role, the thing that they did that kept me functional, that kept me going. But they all had their own vulnerabilities, their, their own weaknesses and all of those things. But I can imagine them in my mind. I see their faces. I see the way they dress. I see the way they decorate their home. I see their, you know, their personalities. 
the good sides and the bad sides of it. And because I can view them each as complex individuals, I can accept them and I can learn to love them. And as I've done that, and I viewed these parts of myself as being individual identities, over time I've been able to assimilate them into myself because I, I know that they are a part of me. I know that I created this image of them in my mind, but that they are a part of me. But it was easier for me to accept them as individual identities than it was for me to accept myself in entirety. And as I've worked with these, these individual parts of me and I've had dialogue with them, I've had conversations with them, I've observed them, I've watched them um, as they've healed as people and grown and evolved, it has allowed me to feel more whole in myself. Would that approach work for everybody? No, it worked for me um, because I could not accept myself in my entirety. I could not see myself as a whole being. I felt very fragmented. I've always felt very fragmented. I've always felt like I'm outside of myself, like I'm outside of the, the world looking in. That was the only thing that I've ever done that has ever actually helped me to accept myself is to be able to break myself down into these individual identities that are not just superficial beings, not superficial creations. It's just like, oh, this one is just anger. No, they these different parts of me, as I started to develop them, they became complex beings and I learned to love them. And as I learned to love them and to recognize that this is not separate from me, this angry teenager is not separate from me. She is part of me and I love her and I cannot love her and not love myself because she and I are the same thing. That has been a game changer for me in being able to accept myself because it allowed me to see my own complexity and my own depth in ways that I had never been able to before. Because before all I could do was look at all these aspects of myself that I hated. I did not like my anger and my rage. I did not like the part of me that felt weak and powerless. I did not like the part of me that was socially isolated and just completely separate from everybody else. It felt like I was outside looking at, I didn't like the part of me that was self-righteous and judgmental. And all I saw was all these things about me that I didn't like. But when I could break those things down into individual aspects of me and give them identities, give them faces, give them personalities, what my therapist did with me as I was creating these was when I would see the negative, she would look at that character and she would help me develop them too. She'd ask me what they looked like, how they dressed, what they were doing. You know, she'd have me have these conversations with them. And every time one would develop and I would be pointing out all the things that I hated, she would always ask, what did they do to help you survive? What was it about this part of you that has kept you functional? Because every single part of you that you don't like comes from a coping mechanism that you needed to survive. So how did this help you survive? That's what allowed me to see the complexity. And that's what overall has helped me to be able to start really accepting myself, even the parts that I don't particularly like, because I can look at those parts now and I can see what it, what it did to protect me that anger and that rage that I felt that I hated, that kept me going. Sometimes it was the only thing keeping me alive because there were days when I thought I won't kill myself because that would make that son of a bitch too happy. 
is that the best reason to stay alive? No, but it kept me alive. It kept me surviving. Even the things that I have hated about myself, I am learning to love because there is complexity, there is depth, and there is a reason for every aspect of myself. Thank you. I, I just, I love that exercise and I love that idea that taking these components of you and externalizing them so that you can create this kind of thing outside of you because a lot of times it's easier to accept something in somebody else than it is in ourselves and then learning to bring it back into us and, and really also that learning to love the whole of it. I think that's one of the best exercises I've heard of out there and and for all our listeners out there I would love in in our comments on our social media wherever anything that you've done to help with self-acceptance. You know, we talk about that peer support and helping one another out and I've been there. What's helped you? What is What has helped you find self-acceptance? What have you tried? And you're like, you know, this has really worked for me because like Ivy said, what works for one person may not work for another, but sometimes what works for one person really helped me out. So, so give us some ideas of how to self-accept? What is something you actually did that said, you know what, this helped improve my self-acceptance a little bit? And then I think kind of to close things out today, I'd like to just share some, I guess, inspiration, some self-acceptance inspiration, you know, some rainbows, unicorns, and kitty cats hanging from trees. <laughs> um, yeah, I know. Um, so maybe not rainbows, unicats, and unicats, rainbows, unicats. <laughs> well, you know what I mean. Um, but I think one of my biggest inspirations, okay, and I am a musical freak, and I'm sorry if you don't like musicals, but I love musicals, and I think life would be better if it was a musical and everybody went around singing and dancing, and it is my dream to someday be flash mobbed because I could die happy. So <laughs> one of my absolute biggest inspirations for self-acceptance is The Greatest Showman. And if you haven't seen it, it is an incredible movie and I really really recommend it even if you hate musicals try to sit through it. Um, it it's basically about the freak show and what these people are so different so very different from everybody else in such a judgmental era and I think you could say that about today in such a judgmental era and learning to really just accept who you are and find a community with those people that are different. I think that's one of my biggest. What's one of your giant inspirations, Ivy? Another musical. I, I'm really sorry, guys. We, Our mother was obsessed with musicals. Uh, we come by it naturally. We can't help it. So I, I apologize again um, if you don't like musicals. The musical Rent was really, really great. Um, it is especially great if you are part of the LGBTQ. I, I'm sorry, I cannot keep up with all of the the, uh, the letters. I, I, I don't know anymore. Um, but it's really great if you're part of that community. Uh, Rent is the story of, in a sense, a lot of misfits and social, out, and social outcasts who find solace in each other and find acceptance in each other and they build each other up and they encourage each other. It has some painful moments, some very sad moments, but it is the formation of a family in a sense of people who have been told that they're wrong, who have been told that they're evil or that they're sick or they're disgusting or whatever, or that the way that they live is too bohemian and it doesn't make any sense and it's not okay. You know, th these people who don't fit within the social norms, who are coming together and loving each other and saying, you know what, we don't really care. 
we really don't care what the rest of the world says. Like this is our lifestyle and we love it and it's beautiful and there's art to it. And there's, there's just all of this love here. Even if other people see it, don't see it. There's all of this love here. We are the embodiment of love and freedom and artistic expression and self-expression. So I think it's a really, really great film, especially if you are part of the LGBTQ community. And I'm sorry for any letters I missed there. I I, I love the movie Rent. It's it's amazing. And and again, just that that finding community with people that are different. Um, I think another big inspiration, and this one is not a musical, um, but it is Tu Wong Fu. Thanks for everything, Julie Newmar. And for those that love action movies out there, you'll be happy to know it has Patrick Swayze and um, Wesley Wesley Snipes. Snipes. (laughs) Yes. um, But also be aware, though, they are drag queens in this movie. And okay, so through basically a set of circumstances, three drag queens end up in this tiny little podunk backwater town. And I mean, you're you're seriously worried a little bit when they roll in. These people are going to get lynched because it's that kind of town. But these three individuals are so they're so confident in themselves and they're so loving and willing to put themselves out there and be who they are even in the face of this potential horrible discrimination and because of that and because who they are and because they're so honestly themselves with everybody they just have this huge impact on this tiny town and it's just I don't know (laughs) maybe you can speak to it a little better Ivy uh, I, I think part of the reason why I always loved this movie growing up is because I felt like our town that we grew up in was kind of like this. I loved being there. Like I, I loved a lot of things about where we grew up, but it is one of those really tiny towns, you know, just shy of a ghost town. Maybe not anymore. It's been a long time since I lived there. But I loved the idea of these three magnificent drag queens who were just so confident and so you know, boisterous and exuberant and loving and generous and enthusiastic, just coming into our town and transforming everybody. Because it's what happens in the movie. They come in, they transform the entire town. All of these people who were depressed or bitter and angry or isolated from everybody else in the town, they just come in and they turn this town into a community. And they just give everybody this boost of self-esteem and they make them want to interact with each other. And it's amazing and it's beautiful. And they would not have been able to do it if they weren't so accepting of themselves, if they weren't so willing to put themselves out there. And if they weren't so generous, because that's, I think that's that's part of it too that I find inspiring for myself is that because I am afraid of putting myself out there and of being noticed, sometimes I I don't, there are certain risks that I don't take. There are times when I see a person, I'm like, that person looks like they're really lonely and they look like they're having a bad day. I want to go up and just compliment them and be like, you look amazing today, or I love your jacket or just anything, just anything to hopefully put a smile on their face. And I don't do it because I'm too nervous too. So part of the reason why that film gives me inspiration, it's like not only being yourself, but putting yourself out there and knowing that you can make another person's day better as well. Yes, that's that's awesome. And and I think that goes right into another one that I find inspirational. And again, not a musical, Napoleon Dynamite. And what I love about this is while in Tu Wong Fu, they're so glamorous and they've got so much together. Napoleon Dynamite, if you've not heard of it, is basically 
the story of a bunch of awkward kids just kind of living their life. And you kind of get this, this snapshot of life for these three awkward kids. And what I love about it is they are awkward. They are just being themselves, which is awkward. And they don't fit in, but they're still just being that. They're not changing to meet anybody. And they find each other and they manage to just... <sighs> make each other's lives happier and better through that connection and just complete acceptance, non-judgment. And just, yeah, we're a bunch of really awkward people being really awkward together. And, and I love that idea because I am so awkward and I so, so relate to the awkwardness. You know, you talked about giving people compliments and I think the best compliment ever, um, Napoleon Dynamite, when he sits down at the girl's table and he's like, I see you're drinking 2% milk. Is that because you think you're overweight? because you totally could drink whole if you wanted. And he has, it's a horrible compliment, but that's what it is. He's just trying to compliment her and he's trying to do it the best way he knows how. And yes, it's horrible and awkward. And I'm like, but yes, those are the kind of compliments I make because my mind freezes up and I sound stupid. And the girl just is like, okay, that's who you are. And, and I love it. I, I think what I love about the movie is it's not just the three kids that are awkward. Almost everybody in that movie, not everybody, but almost everybody in that movie is awkward. Or if they're not awkward, they are just unapologetically themselves. There is almost nobody in that movie who is not unapologetically themselves, whether they're, you know, gregarious and outgoing or whether they're really awkward. Like, you know, you, on the one end of the spectrum, you have Napoleon who makes that horrible compliment and does not know how to interact with people very well. And on the flip side of that, so the most confident character in that movie is LaFonda, who is an amazingly beautiful black woman who is La just Fonda. so confident in herself, so in her groove. And she's just, and she's just always trying to make everybody else's life better too. She's always got a smile on her face. She's like, she sees the best in everybody and she wants to like point it out and bring the best out in them. Like, you know, she sees that Napoleon really likes dancing. So she gives him a mixtape of like this really awesome music. She's like, you should, you should dance to this music. You know, it's just, I love that movie because everybody in it is just themselves. Nobody's trying to change for anybody else. They are just themselves and everybody just kind of accepts it. It's not trying to force anybody to be anything different. It's just, everybody just accepts you as you are. The first time I watched that movie, I didn't think I liked it because I was like, this movie is just weird and kind of bland. But the more times I watched it, I'm like, no, this is this would be the ideal in the sense that just everybody just be themselves and just everybody else just accept that. <laughs> that would be a wonderful world to live in. Yes. Oh, my God. I would love to live in that world. I wish I had that childhood, honestly, Napoleon Dynamite. Um, <laughs> and then I think one last inspiration, which I don't know a lot about this, Ivy, but you have brought it up a lot when it comes to self-acceptance and just kind of empowerment in general is wicked, right? Yes. Uh, I don't know how the musical compares to the book. I don't, we're bring, keep bringing it back to musicals. I'm sorry. Although to my credit, I know nothing about the musical. I have not seen it, but I did read the book. I read the whole series of books. Uh, I really loved Wicked because the character of Alphaba is just so strong. All the way through the, the, the books, she's just so strong. And she's very unapologetically herself. She knows she's different. And she could get bullied for it. 
but she doesn't care. I have always wanted to be one of those people where you can't be bullied because you're impervious to people's rejection, where it's just like you can't be bothered with them bullying you. And that was one of my favorite things about Wicked and that series of books was that Alphaba just couldn't be bothered with you. Her, she was so confident in herself. And of course she had insecurities because everybody does. But she was so confident in herself to the point where she couldn't be bothered with your issues with her. She just didn't care. She had more important things to, to be concerned about. She had more important things to worry about. She had goals. She had things she was working on. It didn't really matter if you liked her or not. That is what I find really empowering about her because it is true that not everybody is going to like you. And sometimes the best way to deal with it is to just not deal with it, to not be bothered with it. I mean, it does kind of go back to that cliche that they tell you when you, somebody's making fun of you, you know, you just don't react to it. And I used to get so mad about that. Cause I'm like, how do you not react to it? But I look at it now and I'm like, no, there were lots of situations in which I probably would have been fine if I had just not let it get to me so bad. So to me, the character Alphaba really does embody that idea of I cannot be bothered with you. Your petty issues that are making you feel like you have to attack me are not my problem. I love that. And, and I think that's another like, well, how do you self-accept and what do you do? And I think that's part of it is finding a, a role model as cliched or cheesy as that is, whether it be fictional or whether it be real, somebody that you admire that acts in that way that you admire and identifying what it is you like about them and figuring out how to put that in your life. And then now with inspiration, if you couldn't tell already with all the musicals, Ivy and I are very musically driven. So I want to give a couple songs. So if you need an anthem about self-acceptance, I'm going to throw a couple songs at you. Uh, my first song is This Is Us. It is from the musical The Greatest Showman. I believe it was Keisha. I, can't, I do not I do well with pop music. Kesha. Kesha. Okay, thank yeah. you. I, I, I'm not really usually up on my pop music. So Kesha actually made it really popular. But This Is Us by Kesha. Great anthem for just saying, you know what? I am me. I am here. I am freaking awesome. Accept it, bitches. And I just love that. And then the other one is Blue October, one of my absolute favorite bands, Fear. And I love this one. This one goes a lot into my accepting mental health and along those lines. Um, just to give you a couple couple lines from that. Today, I don't have to fall apart. I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to let the damage consume me. My shadows see through me. And just that reminder of that chorus and the way the song is, is today, I don't have to do that. Today, just this one moment, I can choose to not let my past lead my life. So Kesha, This Is Us and Blue October's Fear. Okay, Ivy, what are your anthems? Before I, I get into mine, I just want to say, if you have not been exposed to Blue October, please do yourself a favor. Uh, if you have a history of trauma, mental illness, anything along those lines, Blue October is such an amazing band. Justin Furstenfeld, who uh, is their lead singer, and he writes a lot of their, their um, lyrics and everything, he himself has dealt with a lot of mental health problems, drug addiction. He's got his past of trauma. A lot of the music is about that 
um, whether it's his own trauma and, and mental illness or somebody else's or his relationships or his, uh, his relationship with his daughter, that kind of stuff. Amazing. There is a lot of very inspirational and a lot of very cathartic music that, uh, I know Autumn and I have both fallen back on over the years. If you are interested in it on our music resource resource page on our website, differentfunctional.com, you will find quite a list of music and there are a lot of entries from Blue October. All right, so for my anthem, I am a huge Alanis Morissette fan. I know there are people who adore her and there are people who think that the only thing she ever did was the song you wanna know so they don't like her. <laughs> she is definitely more complex than that. She is also one of those people who, where her music reflects where she's at in her life. She writes a lot about her own life and her own struggles. And one of the songs that I have listened to a lot since she put it out is Incomplete. And I love this song so much because the entire song is acknowledging that you know, we're always a work in progress. And sometimes we wear ourselves out just running after this finish line and feeling like we never get there and not appreciating where we are and not appreciating that being incomplete is good and it's part of the process and it gives us room for growth and it means it's only going to get better from here. So that is an amazing, amazing song. If you're having one of those periods of time where you're just like, man, I just keep chasing this, this imaginary goal. It's never going to happen. I'm never going to be better. I'm never going to be happy. I'm never going to be in a good relationship. I'm never, ever, ever going to have anything that I want. I'm never going to be the person I want to be. Listen to the song Incomplete by Alanis Morissette. It will help keep you going through those hard times. The other one, I love pink she's put out some amazing songs as well about being different she is definitely one of my role models uh, especially when it comes to music and just living unapologetically yeah she's a pop star and to some degree she's mainstream but there's a lot of ways in which she is not mainstream and she is odd and she is different and one of her songs that i really really like is raise your glass because that is all about the freaks and the weirdos and the people who don't have their shit together and the people who are just odd and different and exuberant and trying to just get through life. It's raising a toast to all of us who are trying, who are trying to be ourselves regardless of what society thinks we should be and regardless of what anybody tells us we should be. So if you need a feel good anthem, this just like helping you to accept that you are just different. Raise your glass is a great one. I, I love it. I love the I love the music. I mean, I'm so musically driven. You'll probably hear something about music in all of our podcasts. And again, like Ivy said, we have a lot of musical inspiration, musical cathartic songs. Check them out on our website www.differentfunctional.com. Yes. And there are, it's not just lists of songs. There's also uh, Spotify playlists that are embedded in the website. So you can listen to it either on the website or you can find them on Spotify. Awesome. And now to wrap up today, I think just a little parting advice when it comes to self-acceptance. And I think my bit is just start small. I mean, self-acceptance, like we said, it's a journey and you're not just going to 
level up and you're not just going to be like, okay, I'm done. And it's also not something you have to do something huge with. You know, if you absolutely hate yourself, you hate your body, you hate the way you look, you hate the way you are, you don't have to automatically change it overnight. And you're not going to automatically change it overnight. Just start small. Just find the tiniest thing that you can start doing that's going to work for you to change, to change one thought even. Um, just start small. That's my parting advice. I think one bit of parting advice that I would get is also going back to something that we had said earlier in the episode, I think Autumn said it, is that like you're not going to like yourself every day. You're not going to be able to accept yourself every day, and that's okay. I want to emphasize that it's okay to have days where you don't like yourself. But I also want to point out too that everybody has cycles. Everybody has triggers. So maybe certain foods set you off and you don't, you might not even know that those things set you off. Or maybe you do have hormonal issues that cause mood imbalances, or you do have something like bipolar where your neurochemistry gets thrown off or, you know, something along those lines. Factor that in. On the days when you really are hating on yourself, instead of just focusing on how much you hate yourself, also take into consideration what's been going on. Am I getting close to my period? Have I been going through a lot of stressful situations this week? Have I had to deal with a family member that, that makes me anxious? Has it been a hard week at work? Take those things into consideration. It's not an excuse. That's not what it's about, but it is about having awareness. I don't have to like myself every day. It's not going to be easy every day to love myself. Sometimes you're not in your groove and sometimes you just have an off day and you don't even know why. And that is okay. The more you can emphasize in your mind that you don't have to beat up on yourself all the time, the better. You don't have to be productive all the time. You don't have to be successful all the time. You don't have to help people all the time. You don't have to be on and operating at 100% all the time. Because when you're already having a rough time, one of the things that we tend to do is just pile everything else on top of that. Whatever it is that started out the day bad, we just pile everything else on top of it. And yet we still expect ourselves to operate at 100%. That is unreasonable. Take it easy on yourself. It is fine to have days where it's hard for you to love yourself, hard for you to accept yourself. There's, you're going to have days where you nitpick at yourself, but don't pile a bunch of other stuff on it unnecessarily. And don't try to force yourself to operate at a capacity that you're just not capable of today. Doesn't mean you won't be capable of it tomorrow. It just means you're not today. Everything is cyclical. You're going to have times when things are going well, when everything is going smoothly, and then you're going to have days where you spill your coffee and you lose your keys and you're late to work because some asshole in traffic was driving 20 under the speed limit. There's going to be days like that. It's okay. Don't pile everything on top of, you know, well, my skin's broken out and now the whole world is falling apart. Or I have a headache and now the whole world is falling apart. Or I said this thing that yesterday and now I'm embarrassed about it. So now I'm a terrible, awful person. And let me think about every single horrible thing that I've ever done or every embarrassing thing that I've ever done or all the things that make me unworthy. Don't make it worse. Accept where you're at. And that it's, it's just one of those days and you're a little off today and that's fine. Don't pile more on top of it. Do something small, like Autumn said, to make the day better. Even if that is just being like, I made it to work today. I'm late, but I made it to work. I have pants I'm on. I have pants on, 
they're probably zipped up at the fly. Make sure you check before you go in. <laughs> but, you know, do something small or a series of small things. Don't expect extravagance from yourself. Don't expect yourself to be operating at 100% on days when you just aren't. It's okay to have days when you just aren't. Don't make it worse. I so agree with all of that. It's just, it's okay. That's the reality of it. It's, it's okay. So that is pretty much what we have for today. Make sure if you enjoy listening to us, you subscribe. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter and I'm not sure where all else, but look for us and like us and flap us and do all that crazy social media stuff to try and support us. And definitely comment. Um, if you've got ideas on how to do or, or what to do for self-acceptance, let us know. And if you've got ideas at all, just let us know. We want to hear from you. Yeah, we we are currently on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We do have the website, differentfunctional.com. On all the social media platforms, it's either different functional or diff functional. Uh, we will get you better information by the next time around. We are still in process of getting all of this stuff together and getting it organized. But as soon as we have that information, we'll get it to you. In the meantime, whatever platform you are listening to this podcast on, please like, subscribe, follow. Um, leave us a review. Please be nice, as nice as possible. Remember, I am terrified of uh, of people being cruel for no reason. Criticism, constructive, I get it. I'll try not to take it too personally, but please don't be an asshole. Please leave us a nice review and five stars if you can, or at least four. Please don't leave us a bunch of one-star reviews because then nobody will follow us and that will make us sad. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> we will get you better information next time. We hope that you have enjoyed listening and that you have enjoyed our awkwardness and that our awkwardness has maybe helped you feel less awkward yourself or at least more accepting of your own awkwardness. Anything mm -hmm. else, Adam? <laughs> I think that's it. Um, everybody have a great day and thank you for listening. Mama.